0: Hey, Dollhouse listeners, um, just a quick addendum to this week's episode. The episode was recorded prior to the horrific events, uh, the shooting that was taking place just five hours south of me, uh, in Sutherland Springs. I didn't know that that was going on while I was recording. I didn't find out until, um, after I was done, so that's why there's no mention of it in the introduction this week, in the place where I usually talk about things like that, um, So I didn't leave it out. I just didn't know it was happening yet. Um, Now, that being said, on with the show. We interrupt this broadcast for an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact and the Steampunk dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. and welcome to the Steampunk Dollhouse. My name is Blue Stocking and I will be your librarian and your host for the next hour or so. If you are a returning listener, you have my eternal thanks and I thank you so much for coming back to see me. If this is your first time in the Dollhouse, please come in, have a seat and settle in, Um, but please do be aware that the show is by necessity going to be overflowing with spoilers. So if that's going to be an issue, please turn back now, read the books that we're going to talk about before you continue. It's okay. I will be here when you get back. Uh, now, for those of you who are used to listening to my show, you know that I normally do a little <laughs> wrap-up of recent events, and we kind of go into that. Um, sometimes I cry. It just depends on what's happening. Um, but there's, there's a lot going on out there, and it's honestly more than I can really go into uh, right now. We all know what's happening. It's it's coming out right and left. Um, the bad men are being called up right and left, but it's still not enough. Um, so we'll see what happens from there. Um, on to other things. I wanted to remind you guys about the two festivals that are coming up that I will be at. Uh, Steampunk November is going to be next week uh, on November. Well, it's November 10th, 11th, and 12th but I will be out there on the 11th on Saturday. I'll be there most of the day with Mr. Stalking and Baby Stalking. We'll be hanging out, handing out some information about the show. Uh, If my stickers show up, then I might even have a few stickers to give out. Um, It depends on how much of a fan of the show you are, and I will know. So come visit me. And then in December, we're going to be going out to Kerrville to the Wild West Victorian Fest, and that is going to be the 15th, 16th, and 17th, and we will be out there, we're going to go out 15, um, Friday the 15th, so we will be out there all day Saturday. Uh, again, it will be me, Mr. Stocking, and I believe Baby Stocking is going with us, so it's going to be a really full weekend, um, and I will have just finished my semester, my second semester of grad school, so I'll probably need to unwind a little bit. So come out, visit me, say hello, and uh, again, I might have some stuff to give away. I don't know, it just depends. I'm... I got one patron, and then it kind of slowed down, so that doesn't really give me a whole lot as far as liquid cash in order to create things um, to give away. So we'll talk about the Patreon later, um, but that's really all I have to cover um, today for the introduction. There's a whole lot of explanatory stuff I want to go into for the book that we're discussing today, so we're going to go ahead and, and cut our intro short. Uh, we're going to hear a word from. Audible, and then we will go into the show. So we will be right back. Stay tuned. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash now, unfortunately, the Book of Esther is not available in audiobook, and so this week I recommend the book Smugglers Partisans, Poets, and the Race to Save Jewish Treasures from the Nazis by David E. Fishman. The book Smugglers is the nearly unbelievable story of Jewish ghetto residents who rescued thousands of rare books and manuscripts, first from the Nazis and then from the Soviets, by hiding them on their bodies, burying them in bunkers, and smuggling them across borders. It's a tale of heroism and resistance, of friendship and romance, and of unwavering devotion, including the readiness to risk one's own life for art and literature. It is entirely true, and it's based on Jewish, German, and Soviet documents, including diaries, letters, memoirs, and the author's interviews with several of the story's participants. The book Smugglers chronicles the daring activities of a group of poets turned partisans and scholars turned smugglers in Vilna, Jerusalem of Lithuania. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download the book smugglers or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Alrighty, kiddos. Let's get started. Now, as something that I've never explicitly stated before... Um, but I wanted to go ahead and make sure that I've been clear about this, is that when I give you these summaries at the beginning of an episode, um, to or these explanations of things, um, of concepts that you might not know or might not know a whole, lo- whole lot about, these are summaries from Wikipedia. Now, they're the most concise explanations for a lot of these stories and concepts, um, and you don't necessarily have to know this info to enjoy the book or any of the books that I discuss, but... You know me, and I like to provide as much context as possible. Um, the reason that I do this, this is and has always been how I actually read. Um, whenever I would run across things that I didn't know, I would always pause in my reading and I would go and try to find out. Um, and the advent of the internet obviously made this much easier. And then when ebooks came along with embedded Google and Wikipedia searches, That was amazing. That was just so much information. It was wonderful. So essentially, the way I read is to power skim a book. I suck out as much info as possible. I learn new things. And I move on. Um, But having said that, like I said, these are Wikipedia summaries that I use or explanations that I use because they're concise. Um, Having said that, always verify all of your sources Wikipedia can be a valuable source for sources. Never, ever, ever use Wikipedia for anything professional or academic. You would never use it for a paper, uh, something like that. But the sources within a Wikipedia article can be invaluable. So you can mine it for sources. That's cool. Don't ever use it in a a professional or an academic paper. But that's not what this is. (laughs) This is just a cheap little podcast, so I can use... it. But, like I said, I'm telling you. So, there are Wikipedia summaries, so go to the wiki, take a look, see what it has to say, follow their sources for more information. Um, like I told a friend of mine recently, I just unlocked the door. I'm not a teacher. I can only unlock the door. You've got to move through it if you want to continue learning. Okay, so let's get started. Now, the book is... This week's book is called The Book of Esther by Emily Barton. So, it is... Um, Jewish steampunk, although more precisely, I think it would be diesel punk because of the time period and the mechanics involved, but we'll get into that as well. Um, So let's start with the actual biblical Esther, Um, the book of Esther. It's known in Hebrew as the scroll, and it is in the, the third section of the Jewish Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible, and it is in the Christian Old Testament as well. And it relates the story of a Hebrew woman in Persia, born as Hadassah, but known as Esther. She becomes the queen of Persia, and she does thwart a genocide of her people. Now, this story forms the core of the Jewish festival of festival of Purim. And the story is read aloud twice during the festival. It's read once in the evening and again the following morning. And Esther is, interestingly enough, the only book in the Bible that does not explicitly mention God. Um, I thought that was interesting. Now... Uh, Also, (laughs) I forgot to say, this episode contains a lot of Hebrew and Turkic and other languages that I do not speak. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I'm from Texas, and only sissies learn more than one language. Um, We only speak English, and just barely that, so uh, I did have a friend of mine um, give me some pronunciations, and I'll do my best to pronounce them the way he, he suggested, but again... I only speak Texan, so I'm going to do my best, as I usually do, um, but don't laugh. So, now, the story begins with Asturis, the ruler of the Persian Empire, who was holding a lavish banquet, initially for his court and dignitaries, and afterwards for all the inhabitants of the city, uh, the capital city, Shushan, and on the seventh day, he ordered the queen Vashti to come and display her beauty before the guests by wearing only her crown. She refused. And Furious, uh, Ahasurius, has her removed from her position and makes arrangements to choose a new queen from a selection of beautiful young women from throughout the empire. Now, among these women is a Jewish orphan named Esther, and after the death of her parents, she had been fostered by her... uh, There's some confusion, whether it's her cousin or her uncle, uh, Mordecai. Now, she does find favor in the king's eye and has crowned his new queen. And shortly afterwards, Mordecai discovers a plot by two courtiers... To assassinate the king, the conspirators are apprehended and hanged, and Mordecai's service to the king is duly recorded. The king appoints Haman as his viceroy. Mordecai, who at the palace gates, falls into disfavor with Haman as he refuses to bow down to him. Uh, and much like most biblical stories, it is a salad of names, so you got to try to keep up. Now, having discovered that Mordecai is Jewish, Haman plans to not just kill Mordecai, but all the Jews in the empire, because that's what you do. Uh, he duly obtains the king's permission to execute this plan against the payment of 10,000 talents of silver and casts lots to choose the date on which to do this, the 13th month of Adar. So, yes, not only is he going to kill all of the Jews in the kingdom because one of them pissed him off, he's also going to throw the bones and see what date would be best. Um, so there's that. When And if you hear something in the background, that would be my sad, sad cat because I'm not paying attention to him right now. So, Mordecai finds out about the plan. He implores Esther to try and intercede with the king, but she is afraid to break the law and present herself to the king unsummoned, as this was punishable by death. She orders Mordecai to have all Jews fast for three days together with her, and on the third day she goes to the king, who stretches out his scepter to her to indicate that she is not to be punished. She invites him to a feast in the company of Haman. During the feast, she asks him to attend a further feast the next evening. Meanwhile, Haman is again offended by Mordecai and at his wife's suggestion has a gallows built to hang him. I don't know that we're ever really told what Mordecai is doing besides refusing to bow, what he's doing to piss him off, but he's pissing Haman off. So that night the king suffers insomnia and when he orders the court records to be read to him in order to help him sleep, which is interesting, he is reminded of the services rendered by Mordecai in the previous plot against his life. The king is informed that Mordecai never received any recognition for this. Now, just then, Haman appears to request the king's permission to hang Mordecai, but before he can make this request, the king asks Haman what should be done for the man the king wishes to honor. Assuming that the man that the king is referring to is himself, Haman suggests that the man be dressed in the king's royal robes and led around on the king's royal horse, while a herald calls, See how the king honors a man he wishes to reward. To his surprise and horror, the king instructs Haman to do so to Mordecai. Immediately after, the king and Haman attend Esther's second banquet, at which she reveals that she is Jewish, and that Haman is planning to exterminate her people, including her. Overcome by rage, the king leaves the room. Meanwhile, Haman stays behind and begs Esther for his life, falling upon her in desperation. The king returns returns at this very moment and thinks Haman is assaulting the queen. This makes him angrier than before, and he orders Haman hanged on the gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. Unable to annul a formal royal decree, the king instead adds to it, permitting the Jews to arm and defend themselves on that day. On 13 Adar, Haman's 10 sons and 500 other men are killed in Shushan. Upon hearing of this, Esther requests it to be repeated the next day, whereupon 300 more men are killed. Over 75,000 Persian people are slaughtered by the Jews who are careful to take no plunder. Esther sends a letter instituting an annual commemoration of the Jewish people's redemption in a holiday called Purim. Um, which this says means lots. The king remains very powerful and continues his reign with Mordecai assuming a prominent position in his court. So there is the Book of Esther, Esther in a Nutshell. Um, The Esther in our Book of Esther is um, not so much like this Esther. She does save her people, but she kicks much ass, and we'll get there in a minute. Now, this book uh, takes place in a place called the Kingdom of Khazaria, and what Kazaria, in actuality, um, it sat over a major artery of commerce between northern Europe and southwestern Asia, and it was one of the foremost trading emporia of the medieval world. Um, it commanded the western marches of the Silk Road, the actual Silk Road, not the dark web Silk Road, and it played a key commercial role as a crossroads between China, the Middle East, and the Kievan Rus, which was or would become Russia later on. Uh, for about three centuries, the Khazars dominated an area that went from the Don Steppes to the eastern Crimea and the northern Caucasus. That's a whole lot of Russia, a uh, whole lot of Russian area in there, or what would become it eventually. Now, it did serve as a buffer state between the Byzantine Empire and the nomads of the northern steppes, as well as the Umayyad Caliphate, uh, after serving as Byzantium's proxy against the Sasanian Persian Empire. It was an alliance that was dropped around 900, and Byzantium began to encourage the Alans to attack Khazaria and weaken its hold on the Crimea and the Caucasus, uh, while seeking to obtain an entente with the rising Rus' power to the north, which it aspired to convert to Christianity. Between 965 and 967, the Kievan Rus' ruler, Sviatoslav I of Kiev, conquered the capital Attil and destroyed the Khazar state, so keep uh, Attil in mind, that's going to be important later. And determining the origins and the nature of the Khazars, um, there's a lot of theories about their languages, uh, but this says it's a matter of intricate difficulty since there are no indigenous records in the Khazar language. The state was polyglot, which means multiple languages, and it was polyethnic, which means there was a lot of different people there. Uh, The native religion is thought to have been uh, something called tangrism, um, which was also practiced by the uh, Caucasian Huns and other Turkic people. The polyethnic populace of the Khazar Khaganate appears to have been a multi confessional mosaic of pagan, Tangrist, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim worshippers. The uh, ruling elite of the Khazars was said by Judah Halevi and Abraham bin Daud to have been converted to Rabbinic Judaism in the 8th century. But the scope of the conversion within the actual khanate remains uncertain. Now, this most this next part is really important. Uh, proposal of Khazar origins have been made regarding the, the Slavic Judaizing Subotniks, the Bukharan Jews, the Muslim Kumiks, the Kazakhs, the Cossacks of the Don region, the Turkic-speaking Krimchaks and their Crimean neighbors, the Karates to the Moldavian Songos, the Mountain Jews, and others. The reason I'm telling you this, it's very important, because in the late 19th century, a theory emerged about the core of today's Ashkenazi Jews, that they had descended from a hypothetical Khazarian Jewish diaspora who had migrated westward from modern Russia and Ukraine into modern France and Germany. Um, If you don't know what the Ashkenazi Jews are, they're the ones that were decimated in the Holocaust. They're the ones that were centered in large parts of Europe. They were in... Uh, Western Germany, they were in northern France, um, they were in Mainz, they were in Werm, they were in Troyes, they were all over Europe. They were... Uh, let's see, the genocidal impact of the Holocaust, approximately 6 million Jews devastated, devastated Ashkenazism and their culture, affecting almost every Jewish family. So that's what Ashkenazism is. And in the 19th century, there was a theory that the Khazar Jews... Um, Create or or turned into the Ashkenazi Jews. It's a theory that still finds support, but it's viewed with skepticism now. The reason it's problematic, it is associated with anti-Semitism. It is associated with anti-Zionism. It is a questionable theory, and it is used to um, discredit um, modern Jews. So that's where there can be problems. Not with Emily Barton's book, but... um, trying to associate the Khazars with modern Jews. That, that's where an issue can be. But that's that's just to give you an idea of what Khazar was um, and what happened to it, because you will need to know that for the book. Now, Kabbalah. Um, <laughs> Kabbalah became... I know Kabbalah became something everybody started talking about a few years ago with Madonna and the Red String and Britney Spears and all sorts of weird shit. Um, what you need to know about Kabbalah. Now, its it's definition varies according to the tradition um and who's following it but its origin as an integral it was an integral part of judaism and it did become swept up later into christianity um new agers pulled it in there are a lot of occultist and western um esocratics and cratic adaptations of it um in my own practice i've seen um kabbalistic theories come up before it's not something that i practice but i have seen it come up it's basically a set of esoteric teachings meant to explain the unchanging relation or the relationship between an unchanging internal mystery mysterious what's called um Ein Sof or infinity and the mortal and finite universe um it is heavily used by some denominations but it is not a denomination in itself um, now, it does form the foundations of mystical religious interpretation, and it seeks to define the nature of the universe and the human being, the nature and purpose of existence, and other spiritual and ontological questions about where we came from and why we're here and what we're doing. Um, it also presents methods to aid understanding of the concepts and to obtain um, a higher spiritual realization. It was originally developed within Jewish tradition and the Kabbalists often use uh, classic Jewish sources to explain and demonstrate these esoteric teachings uh, these teachings are held by followers in Judaism to define the inner meaning of both the Hebrew Bible and traditional rabbinic literature and they explain they are also used to explain it is also Kabbalistic belief is also used to explain the significance of Jewish religions, of, uh, religious observances Now, traditional practitioners believe that its earliest origins predate world religion, uh, forming what this says is a primordial blueprint for creation's philosophies, religions, science, art, and political systems. Um, Now, it's grandiose, and there are a lot of religious theories that state that they formed the basis of everything, so I'd say take that with a grain of salt. Um, now, historically, it emerged after earlier forms of Jewish mysticism in about the 12th to 13th century in southern France and Spain. It was reinterpreted in the—there was a, a, mystical, a Jewish mystical renaissance um, in the 16th century Ottoman Palestine. Um, and then Safed, Rabbi Isaac Luria, is considered the father of contemporary Kabbalah. It was popularized in the form of Hasidic Judaism in the 18th century onwards, Um, Now, 20th century interest in Kabbalah has kind of inspired a cross-denominational Jewish renewal, and it's contributed to a much wider non-Jewish contemporary spirituality, as well as engaging its flourishing emergence and historical reemphasis through newly established academic investigation. And like I said, there was all sorts of weird shit popping up uh, earlier earlier in the 2000s, And all of these celebrities were wearing these little red strings, and it was Kabbalah, and it was very mystical, and Madonna was involved. It was really weird. Um, If a celebrity's involved, you should probably just back off and and look into it yourself. Kabbalah is actually quite fascinating. Um, It is a really... It is old, and it is really... Deep. And I like I said, I've read into it some... um, I, for a while, when I was younger, I was really fascinated with mysticism and gnosticism and alchemy and um, Kabbalah. Kind of got pulled into that. Their ideas about Ein uh, and just the the aspects of creation and it's there's so much I can't go into it. There's too much, um, but I highly recommend looking into it finding some good reputable theories about it because it's it's fascinating um and a lot of the books that we've read up to this point involved alchemy and while this one doesn't have alchemy per se there are creatures being raised um similar to to what we've discussed before and we'll get into that in the second part so that is the usual, uh, <laughs> my usual half-fast explanation of really important topics and subjects that take place in the book. Um, so, now, the book itself: The Book of Esther by Emily Barton. Essentially, um, Kazaria never fell. Uh, the Jewish warriors managed to hang on, stay strong all through the Middle Ages, and now it is Eastern Europe, it is August, it is 1942. And the Khazar Khaganate, uh, it's an isolated nation of Turkic warrior Jews. They are the only thing standing between what is essentially Hitler and the conquest of Russia. Um, they lie between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And essentially they are literally between Germania and a city called Stalingrad, which as we know is in, uh, currently in, in modern Russia. Now, for many, many years now, Jewish refugees have been coming from Europa. They have been fleeing Germania. Um, people have been, They find, start to find out later that people are being put into camps, um, things of that nature. So Germania decides to uh, lay siege to Khazaria. Um, and Esther, she is the daughter of the nation's chief policy advisor, and she sees what's happening. She sees what, what Germania is doing. She's, she is... She is friendly with the refugees that are camped outside the city. Um, so she sees more than her father does. Her father is, again, the nation's chief policy advisor. So he sees the greater... He sees the the, the, the overall, the big threat, but Esther sees more because she spends she's spending time among the refugees. She's hearing the stories of the concentration camps. She's hearing the stories of people being taken away. Um, and she knows that what's... She, in her sixteen-year-old girl's way that she's divined, she's she's smart. She's her father's educated her, and she's got a really good head for tactics. We find out later, but she she knows that this isn't just a war. This is this is a threat to her people. Uh, and then there at the beginning of this, the story, as yeah, she's. Um, with the refugees, they see enemy uh, planes flying overhead, and it's their first foray into what is sovereign territory. Um, it's an act of war. They're flying, you know, is flying over the territory, and so Esther decides that she wants to fight for her country, but she is the eldest daughter in a very traditional home. What is she going to do? She decides to set out across the steps to find a village of Kabbalists who might be able to help her because Esther decides that she needs to be a man in order to fight for her country. Um, and she thinks that the Cabalists can do it. The Cabalists can do anything. Um, you know, the stories say that they can create men out of clay, so they should be able to do this to her. So she sets out on her mechanical horse. She starts crossing the steppe to go find the Kabbalists, and she finds a hell of a lot more than that. Um <laughs> it's not a super long book. Um, there is a whole lot going on, and it's it's really really interesting. Um, it's a good book. It's a really good story. So we are going to go ahead and take a pause there. I am going to uh, going to hear a promo from my friends, Muhammadan Celestial. We are going to hear some music. And then we will be back and we will rip Emily Barton's beautiful book apart and take a look at what's going on under the hood, if you will. Okay, So we will be right back. See you in just a minute. Do you have foreign engineers building your railroads? No, I have. Foreign bankers holding your debt? No, I have. Foreign gunboats in your harbor? Hmm. No, crazy.
1: Then you need Mohammedan and Salaski chartered purveyors of bespoke modernities since October 18, 1816. We know Reaper drone is the new Gatling gun.
0: We know Intermodal cargo container is the new opium chest. We know the early
1: 21st century is the new late 19th. And we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the Intertools. At www.mohammedanandcelestial.com. At Mohammedan and Celestial, when we hear the great powers invoke civilization, we chamber around in our C96 on your behalf. My heart has been turned into stone. I used to go down to the sea for comfort, now it won't speak to me. And I won't go anymore Now it won't speak to me And I won't go anymore
0: back. That was Daughter No More by Martha Rose, and you can find that on the Free Music Archive, as usual. If you would like to hear more music of the steampunk variety, or in the realm of the steampunk, I highly suggest you check out Clockwork Cabaret. They've been around for a good long while. Um, They know what they're doing. And the music might always seem like it's steampunk, but trust me, it will fit. So, Clockwork Cabaret Podcast, you can get it on iTunes and all the available podcatchers. Go look for them. They know what they're doing. Now, on to The Book of Esther by Emily Barton. Um, This book has a lot going on. (laughs) Um, And actually, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to refer to an interview uh, that Emily Barton gave in 2015 where in her own description she says, um, "You because before I do that, the book technically, I believe, falls into diesel punk uh, because of the time frame. It is later. It is you know in the forties, and the the machines that are used. There's really no steam power. It's all petroleum-based machinery, so it really does fall more into diesel punk. But that's okay. I like to thread that needle. Uh, I'll I'll go into diesel punk because a lot of times they are real, real similar. So what she said was, you might call it diesel punk to be accurate. Jewish, feminist, theological, alternate historical diesel punk. The novel takes place in and around Ostrakhan on the eve of Hitler's assault on Stalingrad, but in a world in which the Khazar Empire never fell in the 900 CE. So the last thing barring Hitler's way to his prize is a polyglot nation of Turkic warrior Jews. And of course, because the novel's history diverged from our history so long ago, a lot of things are different too. Hitler and Stalingrad are both called other things, for example. Kazaria, what we know of it historically, and what I imagine of it, if it had survived into the last century, was a rabbinical Jewish culture. What if a girl in such a culture wanted to fight to save her country, despite her religion's views on a woman's place? That's a lot of what the novel is about. It's an adventure novel, battle scenes, alternate historical war machines and golems, the great Jewish mythic technology. It's called The Book of Esther, uh, and I do have a link for the interview in the show notes. It's much, much longer. Um, It's about her... It's largely about her other books, the, the first two, uh, not as much this one, but I thought that was important to hear from uh, her own, in her own words, the way that she views it. Now, as she said, uh, Khazaria is a thriving Jewish nation. Uh, it survived. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I don't know, uh, it sounded like from the, the historical records that this is... This sounds to me a lot like when Constantine Constantine um, converted to Christianity early on and what she says in the book is that the highborn had converted to Judaism more than a thousand years before when Khagan Bulan had invited scholars from all over the world's great religions to persuade him of their faith's relative merits. Judaism had won. Khazar children learned this was because the great name was the mightiest of the gods. Though Esther knew there had to be some political reasons too and Khazars became a people. So, the Khazars themselves did not start out Jewish they started out, it sounds like, um, pagan, generic pagan, and they were converted. They spoke the best of their faith. The, the uh, Jewish scholars that were brought in spoke best of their faith's merits, and so the Khazar people as a whole converted to Judaism, and, but the, the city itself, the area itself, is full of a lot of different people. There's Tangers there's Yishmaelite, there's Nazarene, there's the Kerates, which are the, uh, I think it's Kerate. They're the, the heretic Jews, which they, they are Jews, but they don't follow the same rituals um, as the, the more Orthodox Jews like Esther's family. And um, Esther's father is a man of, of high status, high place. He's the kinder. Which is he's the the military or he's the, the he's an advisor. Uh, Esther is not pampered per se, but she's not poor. Um, she's smart though. Her father educated all of his children. There's Esther. There's her sister and her her younger sister and her younger brother. They're all well educated. They're all very clever. Um, but Esther is up to that point typical of her community. She's sixteen. Mm-hmm. She's already betrothed. She knows her betrothed. She likes him. She actually does care for him quite a bit, because they grew up together. Um, And she is expected. She actually two months before all of this happen, or this all happens two months before she's supposed to be married. Before she's supposed to start the proceedings to become a wife and move into her own home. So, she's breaking a lot of traditions and a lot of faiths in order to do what it is that she does. But Esther believes that she can help. She believes that she can win. She believes that if she can fight, that she can help turn the tide of the Germani. But no one will listen to her because she's 16 and because she's a girl. So she knows, of, everybody knows of the, of the Cavalists. Everybody knows that they're, they have their, their secret little hidden, secret, not-so-secret village. Um, she just has to find them. And at this point, I also need to mention that Esther in addition to her younger sister and her younger sister Elisheba and her younger brother Shmuel there's also her younger quote unquote unquote brother uh, Itok. Itok is in that is, is in a liminal sort of state he is a slave but he is adopted he was left at the gates um, when he was a baby and He had a menorah chalked in blue, I believe, on his chest, and so they took him in as a Jew. Now, that doesn't mean that that's necessarily true or not. There's no telling if that's actually true, but they took him in as a Jew. Um, He was technically adopted, but he is the slave of Esther's father, uh, Josephus. So while he is called son, he sleeps downstairs off of the kitchen. He has the gold ring in his ear that denotes that he is a slave. Um, His life is not his own and um, the book states that um, if Etok had ever run off by him, just by himself Josephus could capture him he could flog him um, Etok, his life is working in the kitchens and dusting and sweeping and you know going to the markets and bringing them home and this is something that Esther's never really thought about it's it's never occurred to her to question this. It just is what it is. It will become apparent to her later that this is not right. Um, but for now, when when this all starts, this is just the way that it is. So, but Esther was very close to Etok. They are very very close. Uh, they spend a lot of time together. And and what I gathered is that when she was going when she goes to be married, that she wanted to take Etok with her to her new household, where he would still be a slave. Um, and Itok is it's. He is uh, very enamored of the pigeons and the carrier pigeons, um, which will also become to be very important, um, his his skill with the pigeons. He can't read, but he can send the pigeons off with messages. Um, but that's the other thing. He can't read. He's Josephus' son, but he can't read or write. Um, so there's, like I said, a very liminal position, but it's it's clear that he is a slave. No matter what you call him, he is a slave. So Esther decides that she needs to seek out... The capitalists to turn her into a boy, um, and she agrees to take Etock with her. And in this this society, in this this world, um, they have mechanical horses. They have regular horses too, but they have mechanical horses. It sounds very very similar to a motorcycle, except that it 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 runs like a motorcycle. It's got the handlebars and it, it shifts and brakes and clutches the same way. But it's it's a horse. It's got legs. It's got a head. Um, even in What's interesting is that it's, it's a it's a created thing but Esther's horse uh, Salim Salem, her horse almost seems to have an animating force inside of her as well. She seems to have her own mind and her own thoughts and you know she'll snap if the wrong people get too close and she gets you know a little bit of attitude every once in a while she gets tired, appears to be tired. So she is a created being, but she seems to have a force inside of her, and this will also come up uh, later with the golems. So Esther does what amounts to a very, very serious uh, family dishonor. She takes her father's slave. (laughs) She takes her father's mechanical horse. She takes money from her father. She takes food. She takes uh, a weapon, a knife. Uh Itok packs up his little his 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 own special little pigeon, uh, Nagihan into the mobile loft and they climb onto Salem and they tuck off across the steps. Um now she brought everything that she needed except more supplies because Salem does run on petroleum. Um so they're going to have to deal with the the U the U <laughs> my friend Steve said told me how to pronounce it. Um my mouth keeps wanting to say Ugars, so that's how I'm going to say it. I can't quite form the way that it's probably supposed to be said. But they're the nomads of the steppes. Um, they're, they're the petroleum mafia. Um, they control all the fuel on the steppe. If you want fuel, you got to go to them. And that is, that is dangerous. But Esther, she confronts them. She stands up to them. She goes right into their encampment. She gets the fuel that her pony, that her, her mechanical horse needs, and they set off again. Now, in the process of all of this, uh, they will run across what is called a volkalaka. I think is how you say that. Um, because Emily Barton totally put in werewolves. Yes, she did. <laughs> um, these are a little. These are very similar to um, a lot of the older mythological werewolves. There's no tail, for one, and you really only hear that in a lot of the older stories that you can tell it's a werewolf a wolf is a werewolf because it doesn't have a tail um but what they 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 believe her and Itok both um, is that werewolves can't be Jewish and this is somewhat confirmed later um they are people who are they are creatures that are created by uh, have a dark curse being put on a human being a poor unfortunate human being now what happens is her and Itok it's night and they're camped out and they start to hear something, so they pack up real quick. It's dangerous for them to be driving across the steppe in the middle of the night on their mechanical horse Um, because there's, I mean, it's the steppe. There could be uh, pitfalls all over the place, but she gets scared. They take off, and they are being chased by a werewolf. Um, She manages to fend it off, and then it gets trampled under the hooves of the horse, but she feels bad. She doesn't want to leave it there. She believes that she needs to bury it, but they can't stay where they are. Her and Itok argue about this. He's the one saying that it's you know, werewolves can't be Jewish, and she's, she's not sure. So they end up carrying this bundled-up werewolf in the tent all the way with them. They will finally find the Kabbalists' village. Uh, the Kabbalists exists. They are very kind, kind men. Very welcoming, and uh, she explains about the werewolf. But when they open up the the bundle of tent, it is a young girl. Um, it did turn back into a human. It is buried. They have to do it quickly because the sun is setting. And Esther decides to take a piece of the hair because she as a totem, uh, and she tucks it away. So now they are with the Cabalists, um, and this is a whole new world for them because we've got. Golems, the men created out of clay. Um, you know, in previous previous books, we've talked about created people like the Clockwork Men, the Clackers, and um, the Alchemy Wars trilogy and the way that they're treated. The golem are interesting. Um, they're smart. They, they do their work. Um, but they are not human. They do not have souls. But one thing that will come up for them um, as we go on they don't have souls, but they have a conscience, they have a brain. Um, one of them makes a comment at one point that we thirst for justice and the good. And what they say is that they have been formed, but they owe gratitude, but they do have a conscience, so they will speak against their masters if they have to uh, later on down the line. But before all that happens, um, Esther arrives um, at the Cabalist village with Itog. They celebrate Shabbat, um... And then she explains why they're there, that she wants them to turn her into a boy. Now... And the idea is that the Kabbalists can do anything, um... And she believes that they can do this. Now, in asking that she be turned into a boy, this is where, um... Emily Barton really deftly wove in the idea that's that is in that is woven into um, transgender identity theory, as well as um, lesbian and homosexual gender theory, or not gender theory, but the idea that it's a choice versus being born this way Um, and because what happens is esther wants the Kabbalist to turn her into a boy so she can fight she does not this is not a situation where she has grown up thinking that she's a boy and trapped in the wrong body she does not feel like a boy she doesn't truly want to be a boy she wants to marry shimon she wants to marry her betrothed and do all of that and but she also wants to save her country And she also is afraid that if they can turn her into a boy, that they cannot turn her back. And so she's got to think about what her life will be like afterwards because she doesn't want to live as a man, but she wants to save her country. Um, But she knows that masquerading won't do the trick. So, But what happens, she approaches them. She explains why she wants to do this. They convene about it, and they turn her down. They tell her that they cannot do this. Um, And it's a matter of cannot versus will not. They say that they cannot. Um, She thinks it's that they will not. now what happens is later that evening, she's approached by a very, very young um, initiate named Amit. And Amit explains to her that he may have a solution for her problem uh, if she goes to the mikvah and... I probably should have Explained this before Mikvah is very Very important Um In the Jewish religion It is incredibly important Mikvah is the ritual bath But it's not just Bathing of humans Mikvah is Bathing uh, It's the ritual Purification of people But also of Things like Dishware And food Or um Food preparation Um Tools Because of Keeping kosher And keeping things separate So everything has to be Purified So mikvah Most towns would have had a mikvah of some sort, even if it wasn't big and fancy, because uh, it's not a bath. It's a dunking. You get in, you dunk, you say your prayers. You have to get clean before you get into the mikvah. Let me put it that way. You take a bath first in a actual bathtub or shower or whatever, and you get everything clean. I mean, you scrub under you know you scrub under your fingernails, you scrub your hair, you clean your ears, you clean your toenails, you clean all of it. You scrub everything down. And then you get into the mikveh for purification. So the mikveh is incredibly holy. It is incredibly important. And in that belief system, it is very, very powerful. So Amit comes to Esther and explains to her that he was not born a boy. Amit was born a girl. Amit did not want to be a boy. Amit felt that he was... Or did not want... Amit did not want to be a girl. Amit felt that he was a boy. Amit truly wanted to be a boy, and he wanted to leave, and he wanted to go study with the Kabbalists. So Amit went into the mikveh, and he prayed, or at that time she climbed into the mikveh, and prayed that she would be turned into he, that she would be become what she felt, what he felt that he was. And his prayers were granted. He came out of the mikveh. He rose from the mikveh, a boy. He left. He came to the Kabbalist village. He joined their ranks, and um, that was that. So, he tells him, he tells Esther, try this, this worked for me, maybe this will work for you. So, Esther and Itak and Amit sneak back over to the mikveh in the middle of the night, and she goes through the rituals again, and she climbs in, and she says her thing, but Esther doesn't really want it. This is not truly what she wants to be. She's doing this because she thinks it's the only way to save her land, but she doesn't really want to be a boy. And so it doesn't work. But all of a sudden, the men of the, of the village come running up to her. They've, they've figured out how to help her um, because what she actually prayed for was a way to save her country, a way to save her people. Um, and in that, that way that be careful what you wish for and uh, they, the all-importance in every magical discipline of being specific and being exact. She wished for a way to save her country. She got a way to save her country because they come up and they tell her, we're going to give you golems. We're giving you an army of golems to take back with you. And, you know, each of them is worth this many men. They can can't die unless you purposely... Uh, Wipe away the Amet, which brings them to life. So, not quite what she was looking for. Um, But it's going to work. And, like I said, this is the the issues that come up because of Amet and Esther. And Esther and her betrothed, uh, (laughs) Shyman. Esther is very drawn to Amet, but Esther is also very confused. Because she doesn't know um, if Amet is... Actually, a boy physically. Um, and she, because of the the traditions, because of the fact that they can't, there's no way that she's going to be able to see Amit naked to know if Amit was actually physically transformed into a boy. Um, and she doesn't know if that's important, but she can't stop thinking about it. She's 16. She can't stop thinking about it, but she's also very attracted to her betrothed. So it's, there's a whole weird, hormonal, confusing situation going on there as everybody tries to figure out what's going on with them. Um, So Amit, and Amit also... The reason that Amit is so interesting is because Amit brings up the issues of being a marginalized person, what can qualify as a marginalized person, and yet marginalizing someone else. um, Because Amit has very, very deeply ingrained... Prejudices against the golem, that they are not human, that they have no soul, that they don't truly think, that they don't feel, and that it is heresy for them to want to pray, because the golems want to pray. They want to worship God. They want to sing the songs. They want to take part in the rituals, and Amit is, because Amit is traveling with the army. He's the only one from the village besides the golem who's traveling with the army. And Amit is losing his shit because the golems want to behave as men, as traditional jewish men and so he is very very dismissive of them and very offended that they want to behave in this way when Ahmet himself threw off the female form that he was born with to obtain the male form that he should have had um and this actually became this something came up earlier this week where um, i was reading about margaret killjoy uh, on, She was talking on Twitter and on Facebook about an anarchist book fair um, where TERFs showed up. And if you don't know what TERFs are, TERF is trans-exclusionary radical feminism. Um, now, in using that phrase, I'm probably going to piss somebody off because people have decided that TERF is a hate word or uh, a slur. But it's exactly what it stands for. Um, there are groups of feminists who do not want any men involved, and that includes... Transgender women that were born men. They don't want them involved. They see it as just as men taking over more of what they shouldn't have, even though that's not the situation, that's not the case. But it's again, it's a group of marginalized people marginalizing someone else. And why we continue to do this to each other, I don't know, but human beings are the worst. <laughs> so Amit. Became the boy he felt that he always should be, but he doesn't like the golems for trying to be something that they weren't necessarily born as either. Um, like I said, people are the worst. So we've got that um, now. This is also we've got to deal with the the army that Esther builds as she is moving back to uh, Atiel, which I mentioned earlier, the ca- the Khazarian capital. Um, the actual capital, the historical one, that is the capital that Emily Barton uses um, in this one. It lived, it succeeded, it lasted. So as she's leading her her polyglot hodgepodge army back to with oh, and they have golem horses too. I forgot to bring that up. They have the horses. They have some golem horses too, which is awesome. And so they're leading all of these back, right? They're taking them all back to Atiel, and they're they're pulling people in as they go. Um, so they get the, the Uyghurs, like I said, the, the Petroleum Mafia. Um, there are Nazarenes that are joining up, the Golems, of course, um, and then the Heretics, the Karates. Um, we have a, a badass Wonder Woman Heretic Karate, I think I'm saying that right, who joins. Um, and she'll be super important later, too, because she's got a, a talisman that's, that's going to give them some things that they need. Um, so we've got women, we've got men, we've got boys, we've got, you know, once they all get back, um, she goes back to Atiel. She manages to get everybody back there. Um, her father obviously, clearly, of course, is not going to be happy with her and he doesn't like what she's done. Um, he tries to, I mean, it's only been a week. She's only been gone a week. So, he tries to re-exert control over her. Um, now, they had been getting uh, messages back, um, pigeon messages back. Uh, pigeon messages had been coming back and forth um, to let them know what was going on in Attil. And it was it looked like her sister's handwriting, but she couldn't be sure because she didn't think Elisheva had anything to do with the pigeons. Uh, her sister was not like her. turns out they are from Elisheva, because um, each message ended with, and you're in trouble. Um so they get back. The father's trying to assert command over Esther again, and she's not having it. Um, and what they finally decide to do, because nobody will let them fight, um, the, all of these men are gathered, and they're getting restless. They're all ready for battle. Esther decides to storm the... Now, the, the place is the... Atil It's ruled over by the, the Kagan, I think it's pronounced... Um, but nobody ever sees the Kagan. They, this person, the Kagan stays behind a screen, and nobody can look upon him except for the Beck, B-E-K, the Beck. The Beck is the military arm of the Kagan. So what she decides to do is attack, well, not attack, but basically attack the, uh, the palace to get in there and force their hand, to force uh, the Beck's hand and the Kagan's hand to say that they want to fight. They get in there. The Kagan ends up, um... Esther ends up coming to the Kagan's attention. She has an audience with him. She's given permission to fight, and she demands that other girls be allowed to fight as well. Um, everybody is gathered up against her father's wish. She is sent out with the men and the golems and everyone else to the front. What we don't find out until she is in the midst of it and gets grabbed up by one of the Beck's men is that, um... Her father, the Beck had made a deal with her father uh, to yank her out. As long as she got her men there, she got pulled out, and then they were also... Because her brother insisted on going, too, so Shmuel gets yanked out. But the same deal was not made for itok uh, And there's confrontation between Josephus and Itok that makes it very, very clear that Itok is a slave. He is not a son. He is a slave. Um, Josephus has no respect for him. He does not care for him. And uh, it's okay so she gets pulled out but because she's esther she manages to find her way back in time and time again um now while all this is happening um we do have some technology that is going awry Uh, the germans have mustard gas and they do get caught in it but they do have their gas masks but still you know damages their skin and it it does damage a lot of the enemies. Um, we've got aerocycles floating around that are um, owned by the Uyghurs. We've got aeroplanes. Um, like I said, we've got the mechanical horses. And Salem gets ripped in half, and I almost cried. I actually almost cried when the source went down. And now the book doesn't end with any finality. It doesn't end with the victory. Um, I'm hoping that means that she's writing another one. I don't know for sure. Um, I might have to go find her on Twitter and ask her. Um, but it's a good story. Um, the battle scenes are really well done. The ethical questions are... It is, it is very, very loaded with uh, ethical dilemmas. Like I said, the, the golems, the, the nature of the golems are the human... Uh, I'm not human, but do they have a soul? Do they have a spirit? Because they are created things... What does that mean? Um, and also what they find out later, the the, the talisman that the carrot woman has um, turns out to be instructions for creating Golem, which is supposed to be something that only capitalists can do, and only with a mignon of ten men. Um, but Esther and her ragtag band of <laughs> misfit toys, they all manage to do it. Now, the Golems that they create are a little eh, misfit... Island of Misfit Toys, but they do it, they create them and they get them moving Um, but what does that mean for them, what is their nature, because like I said the mechanical horses seem to have spirits too, they have personalities so where does that spirit come from, where does that soul come from how is it imbued, you know is is birthing a golem no, any different than birthing a human being and Who's to say what the soul is? Um, and then, like I said, the issues with Itok and the fact that he is, you know, quote unquote, the son of Josephus, but he's not. He's it's a practice that's and it was practice. It's a real practice. It really happened. It's no different than um, the African American slaves here in you know here in the South that were given their master's last name. It's it's giving the name. But it's not giving anything else. You know, you can say that you know, when you hear these southern we treated our slaves so well. Well, yeah, up to a point, maybe you did, but there's a point where that stops and everyone remembers that they are a slave and you are the master and that will come into play at some point. You're not gonna protect your slave over your children, are you? No, probably not. And so that's what happens to Itok. He's called son, but when it comes right down to it, when the Beck's forces are pulling Esther and Shmuel off the battlefield at Josephus's command. Itok isn't pulled off. He is left out there to fight, and he does well. He does very well. Until he goes down, he does really well. But Josephus doesn't care. He doesn't care that Itok is out there and is going to die. That's his slave, and that's all that matters. Itok ran off. Um so trying to dress it up. And, you know, like I said, Esther didn't see it for so long. She didn't see that Itok was truly a slave. He was not her brother. She calls him her brother. He's not her brother. And sometimes we need that. When Sometimes when we're in that privilege and we don't see that that privilege doesn't extend to everyone around us, our privilege keeps us elevated and keeps us clouded, and we don't understand until it is forced into our face, until that that boy that you've been calling brother is pulling on his gold earring and saying, I still sleep by the kitchen. (laughs) I can't leave, you know. It's, you don't want to see it until you have to see it, and then you can't not see it anymore. And that's, that that point is made very, very clear. And again, like I said, the the LGBTQ issues, the the confusions, there is a, a scene with, finally near the end with Esther and Amit. um that's going to be problematic later I think if there's a second book there's going to be a problem um, but she does confirm to a certain extent that Amit is a boy um, he is physically a boy and again that's gonna make things worse for her for her confusion um, but it's you know it's 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 again it's a new way to look at it what makes, It takes the idea that this idea, I think, that people on the right seem to come up with that a a guy just decides to put on a dress and say that he's a woman out of one day, out of nowhere, or a girl just decides that she doesn't want to be a girl anymore. It doesn't work that way, and this is a conversation that I've had with my own family, and I can't seem to get them to understand that. Nobody would choose to be this way, knowing the life that they're going to have to lead, knowing the things that they're going to have to put up with, the abuse that they're going to have to suffer, no matter how inclusionary your friends are, there are going to be people who want to exclude you and keep you from doing things like going to the bathroom. No one would choose that just on a whim. It doesn't work that way. And so I think, and I can't speak to her intentions, um, but I think that's, that's the, the impression that I get from this, is that's the, what she is trying to say or what she's trying to um, get across. That's why Esther couldn't be changed, because she didn't truly want to be, because she wasn't truly a boy inside, in her soul, in her heart, in her mind. She wasn't. She just wanted it so that she could fight. But Amit was a boy, was born to be a boy. He was just born into the wrong body, and that is why the mikvah worked for him. That's why it changed him. It was a holy prayer, and it changed him because that is what he wanted. That is what he should have been. Um. And I like the way she. I like the way she covered it, and I like the confusion in Esther's heart. Because when because she didn't when she didn't know whether Ahmet um, was truly a boy or, or you know, had the the features, the body of a boy or a girl and so esther was confused because she was forced to think of if amit is a girl what does that mean um that confusion that you can have when you're that age and you don't really know what's going on so i like the way she covered it it was it was well done there was humor there was seriousness and it was respectful it was really well done you know there were a couple of things in the book that did <laughs> that did make me laugh um she slipped in a couple of jokes—not jokes, but a couple of things that there's one part. If you know anything about Judaism and Christianity, uh, you know the story of the lost tribe, that there's 13 tribes, one of them is lost. Um, but they're—and she's talking—there's a part where Esther says, Esther began enlisting that her next soldier, a lanky, dark-skinned man. She thought he might be an Ifrakean, Ifrakean Jew, one of those speculated to belong to the lost tribe— though Esther had never understood how they were lost when everyone seemed to know where they were. And I love that because we hear about the lost tribe in, I don't know, maybe it's the things that I read that I hear about it. Maybe it's just me, but... um, The speculation that they're in Ethiopia with the Ark of the Covenant. But that's... They're always called the lost tribe, but they're not really lost because everyone seems to know where they are. And then the other one, it's something that didn't connect, that didn't click in my brain. Because like I said, this is not amalgamations, but... um, Everything is a pseudonym or a synonym for what's actually in the real world. Um, Like I said, you know, Germania instead of Germany. Um, And so she's got an uncle that she's trying to find. He had been disowned years ago, but she thinks that he can help. And so she's trying to find him, and she knows that he's in Praha. And it didn't click in my brain until someone is telling... She gets a letter. She gets a a pigeon back, and um, she says, the... the, uh, Section says, He held the paper out in front of her and pointed to a word, unintelligible in its foreign script. Right there. She couldn't tell. A golem that protects a synagogue? He says it's an old story, he read along, and he wishes it were true. The Jews of Praha would be grateful for it now. It's the golem of Prague. <laughs> if you know your, your history, if you know your story of the golems. So I didn't know Praha was Prague. I didn't know that. I actually was looking that up later. Um, and that's why I love books like this where it's the real world but it's it's a, a it's almost like a, a projector transparency laid on top it's the same world but the the names are are real but not the ones that we would know and I love that so she did a really good job like I said there's little jokes and references and things in there um it's all woven very well together the issues are handled very sensitively um and it's, it's one of those where it's going to take a nation You know, it's going to take everybody It's going to take the, the Khazars And the Uyghurs and the Nazarenes And the Ishmaelites and The Tangers and the Heretics And the men and the women and everyone together Coming together and, and fighting this Horrible, horrible thing that's coming out of Germania and Beating them back because we know What they're going to do, we know what they're trying to do And they need to be stopped and it's. It was just it was really well done, and I, I am like I said with the way that it ended, I am hoping that she she writes another one that she you know me I love trilogies I love a trilogy I'm a sucker for it, so I do hope that she writes another one. But there's a lot of good history in here, um, a lot of good stories. The mysticism is is wonderful, um, especially the creation of the gollum. It was, it was, excellent. So. That is the Book of Esther by Emily Barton. Uh, it is available in hard copy, and it just came out in paperback. There is no audiobook, and I don't know if there will be. Um, I wish there was. I <laughs> audiobooks are valuable for the pronunciations, <laughs> um, but I don't know if there will be or not. But it was—it's good, and I—I I can't recommend it enough. It's a, another addition to the steampunk canon. Um, again, another. Another side to the story. There is no, and this is part of the whole um, steampunk doesn't have to be Victorian. This has nothing to do with Victorian England at all in any way, shape, or form. It didn't spring out of Victorian England. There's no inspiration in there whatsoever. This is pure steampunk slash diesel punk that came out of the mind of a Jewish author who decided to take her heritage and her traditions and her stories and create this amazing fantasy story completely separate from regular steampunk, from the norm and it's, it is worth it it is a valuable addition to the canon and it is it's a, she's a good hero Esther is a a good hero, she's she's the role model that a lot of young girls probably need right now um, especially with Nazis running loose across America so we're gonna wrap this up That is The Book of Esther by Emily Barton. I highly recommend it. Um, Come find me on Facebook. Come find me on Twitter. Tell me what you think. And Emily Barton is on Twitter, too. She is pretty cool. Um, Really nice. Easy to talk to. Uh, She likes to chat with her fans on Twitter, so go find her. I believe it's E-M-B-L-Y Barton. It's Emily Barton. Um, Or find me, and I will direct you over to her. Um, But that is that. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review, as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion matters, and it does have an impact on how many people can find me. And, as usual, I want to gently remind you guys that I do have a Patreon, and it's really sad and lonely. There's only one patron right now. Um, So I would ask that you remember that this is largely a one-woman show, And even for something as simple as what I'm doing, it can get expensive. Now, I've got some stickers coming in soon from Teespring. um, But I can't really afford to... I would like to do giveaways and things like that. But in order to do that, I have to buy merchandise in order to give it away to you guys. um, And to give it to other people and to get the word spread out. In order to do that, I need money. And I'm a grad student. I don't have a lot of money. Um, so my ability to do giveaways and all that good kind of thing, that depends on you. Um, and the library depends on you. So, do what you can. You can do it one time, you can do recurring, it's all up to you. Um, if you would actually, if you would be interested in actual t-shirts, let me know and I will start getting those produced. Uh, and we'll see where we go from there. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for Writers on the Wall of Storms, or... Why sometimes it's about the silk and not the steam, with Ken Liu's Dandelion Dynasty series. The Steampunk Dollhouse is a Wind-Up Girls Studios production and bears a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, that crooner of tunes and smasher of patriarchies. Our intro music is Baby, I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Good Night by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Did you run out of fuel for your mechanical horse with no u on the horizon? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out.
1: deity, flowers, nullifying...